0: Hi, Don's fans, Ian here. Welcome to the 10th in our series of Don the Stat bonus episodes. The history of Tasmanian football goes back into the 1860s, and yet despite the expansion to a national competition in the 1980s, all attempts to have a Tasmanian side in the AFL have failed. That is, until the announcement in early May that saw local hopes rise that their dreams would finally become a reality. Yet, the deal struck between the Tasmanian government and the AFL has unleashed a firestorm of local and political forces against the agreement centered around the building of a new stadium in Hobart. To talk through where things stand at the moment, I'm joined by Deputy Editor for the Advocate and Essendon fan, Alex Fair. Alex, thanks for joining me tonight.
1: No problem at all, Ian. Thanks thanks for the invitation.
0: That's all right. Well, look, let's before we get mired down in the politics, let's start by discussing you. Um, just give us a bit of background on who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, so, so I'm the uh, deputy editor of the Advocate newspaper here on the northwest coast of Tassie, so a little bit away from the uh, the firestorm, as you call it, that's uh, come about due to the uh, the call or the desire from the AFL to ensure we have a new stadium to, to fulfil our AFL dream. Before that, I was the, uh, the sports editor up here for about five or six years and, and spent about uh, I think it was about eight years or so before that in system with the examiner, which plenty of time on the sports desk there amongst other duties, which which allowed me to spend a lot of time around uh Footy from both a uh, uh, grassroots, from a state league point of view, and especially lawn system with the Hawks having a big presence there at uh, what's now called Utas Stadium. So, for, yeah, from a professional point of view, if we're just sticking purely to football, there's been uh, plenty of that across the journey. But from a personal point of view, obviously everything's uh, red and black, which is why we're we having the chat now.
0: Absolutely, that's why I reached out to you. I Thought he's a he's the perfect person we can talk Essendon and we can talk uh, Tasmanian footy. So really, wanted thanks for coming on to talk about that. Well, look. Let's start with the with the fun stuff. Let's talk about Essendon. Uh, how did you become an Essendon fan? And can you remember the first time you saw the Bombers play, whether it's on TV or uh, in person?
1: Yeah, I was having a bit of a think about this once you threw the invitation out there, and it probably—it's actually—I think it's a pretty cool story, but it might not be. Um, so, my grandparents on my mother's side, grandfather was a Collingwood supporter, and my grandmother was an Essendon supporter. And I remember the, the very old school sort of headbands you used to have back in the day. I don't know—I don't know if the listeners can remember those, but the, with the old '90s AFL logos, and obviously. There was the old bomber there on one of them, so that was a, a red-coloured headband, and there was a white one with the old the uh, the magpie there at the times. Uh, long story short, was there was sort of we could have had one each, me and my sister, that is. But I was the older sibling, so somehow I ended up with them both, and I eventually got told, no, this you can't have this, you can't be supporting two clubs. So I don't, I can't quite remember what drew me towards Eston and we're talking early 90s, so probably around the 93 Premiership period. Whether that played a role or not, I I can't answer at this point in time, but I I did decide that the Eston one was the one for me. And that's my history obviously, yeah, from that point on I was probably, um, obviously sucked in by the club and everything that was the they were producing on field around that that period of time. It probably wasn't until 1998, I reckon, that I really started taking a super, you know, let's say an every week interest, if that makes sense. I remember watching the 96 pre with my grandparents and, and obviously Plug-a-Lockets behind, which sunk us uh, with the last kick of the game. But it was probably 98, I think the Bombers won maybe six in a row to sort of the tail end of that series to to go from nowhere and into finals contention. It was probably that period of time when I really jumped on board and then that led to 99 and, and despite the heartbreaking end to that season, it was good fun until that that point and then obviously we all know what happened in 2000 yeah. with the uh you know one of the greatest teams that the competition's ever seen so that's sort of the brief history about how i jumped on board the eastern Wagon all those years ago and we're still here you know more than that, two decades later
0: that's right plugging away well it sounds like you've got a fairly similar timeline to me in terms of 93 and, and moving on from there so i guess we probably have the same similar memories and then going through the same level of uh constant disappointment that we've been experiencing this <laughs> The past couple of decades, but look at everything's looking up. We'll get onto that in a minute. I
1: think, that, I think it helps coming through that period of time, doesn't it? When we grew up, you know, you grew up in that Kevin the area where the, the expectation was there that success was almost a given, and you know, you know, ninety six and ninety nine prelim final losses by a point, a grand. A, grand final in the dominant year in 2000, even a a losing grand final in 2001, there was this great golden era. Whilst the past, uh, you know, since 2004, has obviously been very tough to actually have those memories. It does actually help.
0: Yeah, it sustains you a bit. Well, look, considering memories, what about the players that have stuck with you most over the time? Can you remember who your first Essendon hero was and then the other players that have, you know, really stood out to you as you've been an Essendon fan?
1: Probably the first hero. Yeah, I'd say Michael Long. I'll say, I mean, it's probably the, the obvious, easy answer in many ways. If you were talking from 1993 onwards, obviously, but but Michael Long would probably be the one. But, I mean, there's many plays over that journey, especially that period of time we just spoke about that still stick with me. One couple that couple that still do for some reason, like Shaycock, do Collins and Barry Young got, got, you know, different sort of players. But, but what they did in that sort of that late 90s period was just, you know, still there. Um, I remember Dean Rioli starting off in, in 99, you know, sticking with the Deans, Dean Wallace, what he was able, able to do as a player. You, you go into that 2000 period, obviously, and you've you got guys like Carousel and Blumfield, Blumfield, sorry, Heffernan. I mean, there's the obvious ones like Heard, Lloyd, Lucas, etc. Yeah, you, know, you know, Darren Buick, Boris was always one which would stick with me as well. So, I mean, we could go on forever. I mean, there's all the, you know, the cult heroes going a bit further. You know, Courtney Johns, the Messiah who was supposed to save us, save us, things like that. So it goes on forever. I haven't really ever been, you know, a favourite type one individual player's to sort of support. I mean, if you ask my friends now or anything like that, then, you know waller's the man right now at the moment and, and obviously his comeback story's been brilliant to watch but from an overall big picture it's been more you know individual you know not individual player, sorry sort of collective over, over that journey from from that perspective. about sort of pinpointing this is my favorite player it's been more you know bits and pieces across the entire you know 20 25 years or so whatever it's been
0: yeah, I, look, you had me at Shay Cockatoo Collins there. He's one of my early favourites and just one of the ones that stuck with me. And it was uh, pleasing to see that he's he's back at the club at some capacity yeah. with the Indigenous Advisory Committee. Look, you brought up a few of the the early moments that really cemented you as an Essendon fan. What, what about maybe post-2000s? What are the ones that really stick with you, the ones that you come back to uh, when you're sort of reflecting on uh, your support of Essendon?
1: I mean, if you say post 2000, probably two or three games probably still really stick out to me. I mean, if you go, again, some of these are probably obvious, like 2009 Anzac Day, you know, that's one which will be there forever. Uh, The win against the Hawks in 2015, I think that was round two. So, you know, at the time, the KO Hooker goal, at the time, you know, Things were good again. You know, we were supposed to be past all the drama of the previous years. Obviously, we know what happened going forward there. But, you know, that, that moment, that game, considering the you know the players hadn't had a pre-season, everything like that, and the uh, the loss the previous week against the Swans when the game looked in the bag, those sort of moments. I mean, the uh, fast-forward 12 months to 2016, I think it was round two again, the win over Melbourne. To me, that still stands out, you know, as well. One of the most significant wins in SB in history because the Bombers, you know, that year with the players gone via suspension weren't supposed to do anything. That, that win should not have happened. But the find the odds just to sneak that, you know, it was only three wins for the year. The, you know, the, the end result was what was expected from a ladder point of view. But to get that win still, you know, it still stands out to me years later. So, I mean, if we're talking about individual, Wins, you know, they're the sort of three that still stand out for me. If we're going post two thousand as performances, I mean, we've had there's been other moments to remember in that period of time, obviously, but they're probably the three that still, you know, even now if you sort of sit back and think about those, or you jump onto YouTube and look at the, the vision of that final sign, it still makes you smile almost like you're watching it live.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people have brought up that that 2016 win as as one of their favorites when we've been going through this series i I do also like that uh 2015 when i i got stuck on a plane um through most of the the second half coming back from a footy trip in adelaide so but i got in the car and managed to hear the last uh last little bit of it with the uh the triple m commentary which i think you can find synced up on on youtube with the the Kayla hooker kicking bloody goals so um yeah i did manage to at least catch catch the audio of that no Pretty sure that, you know, even though he's played for another seven years, they're still digging parts of Brad Hill out of the uh, MCG turf after Patrick Hamboury slammed him into it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Look, before we start moving on to focus on Tasmania, I always ask the guests on this show, what's your unpopular opinion about the past or present? What's the one thing that would put you Mm -hmm. against, against most of the fan base?
1: Yeah, it's a good one. Good question. Unpopular. I don't know if it's unpopular, but... Sort of think that maybe we went too cheaty, maybe gone two or three years too much. Maybe we should, when, when things started to turn pear shape around that, the salary cap period, and what was it, 2000 and ended 2002 when Blumfield, Heffernan, and went and Moorcroft at that time from memory, and that was a year after Hardwick, that that should have been the exit, should have come sooner rather than that. You know, the, the, it was always a badge of honour, the fact that there was one coach, you know, as an Eston sport as a kid, you know, we had this one powerful coach, everything like that, and it delivered success. You know, there was four premiership trophies there that, that maybe, just maybe things should have, you know, the court should have been cut earlier. And uh, who knows where we'd be now if, if things had gone that way. Maybe, the you know, the Mark Harvey handover, which had been rumoured for many, many uh, years before, and if that had taken place, where would we be now? Th- things like that, we can't we can't uh we can't obviously we can't go back in time from that point of view but maybe that's one maybe that that's the way we dealt with that as a club you can sort of relate now that there's still sort of hang-ups from the past in a way that we still probably go back more instead of going forward we still have that opinion many people that you know we're a great club because of what we've done in the past instead of looking at what we're doing in the present Mm -hmm. so maybe that if we'd been a bit better 20 odd years ago, we might be in a better position now. And whilst it's easy to look back and say we had a great coach and we had a great period of time, if it had been a little bit less, maybe we'd be in a better position right now. Yeah. I think that, tr- I think
0: just sort of reflecting on it, I think we didn't keep up with the transition to professional football. I don't yep. think our drafting, our drafting and trading strategies during that time weren't, weren't ahead of the curve. Whereas, uh, exactly, and you know, and, a, there was a lot of success in previous years had come from sort of the zone, the zone system and picking players up through that or picking, you know, developing players through the under 18 program. And, and once that went away, I just don't think we adapted quite quick enough. I don't, I think Shady, you know, Shady showed shown he could re- reinvent himself and reinvent a team. And I, I don't doubt he could have done it again. I just think as a, as a whole club, we just didn't adjust quickly enough to the new paradigm. And then we've yeah, been yeah. trying to catch up ever since. And, and we've made some try to cut some corners doing so. And that, that's led to a few issues uh, down the track, which we don't need to go into in no. too much detail, really, do we?
1: That's uh, it's a good point you mentioned the players and brought in that time. I, as soon as you said that, I, I think back to Matthew Allen and Justin Murphy, that, those sort of times, and M- Mark Alvey as well around those times. You know, it's Good in, good maybe in theory, but it wasn't. They were never going to win another premiership. They were always ju- just there to to hang around and and try to keep our head above water, and and that didn't work. So yeah. that was more of a shitty mantra than anything.
0: Yeah, I sort of look at a bit what Richmond are doing, have done in their last off season bringing in Hopper and Taranto. And yeah. they're better quality players than the, the players we brought in around the same yeah, time. Yeah. But they're trying to get one more flag out of their golden generation. And sometimes yeah. you just need to the bite the bullet and, and go be hard. Or the, sometimes you can go a bit too hard, a bit like maybe Hawthorne did uh, yeah, when yeah. they got rid of their one. So it's, it's a really fine balance. Which way do you go? And there's probably no right, right or wrong answer. And a lot of it comes down to luck. Yeah. I
1: mean, it's a good – Hawks are a good example, isn't it? I mean, it's a pain now, but – you go to a Hawks supporter and say, hey, you got your three premierships in a row out of that. Are you you know, you willing to accept what's happening now? When you look back on that, I reckon most are saying yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully in, say, 10, 15 years' time, we're looking back at some poor decisions after three consecutive premierships and have the same exact feeling there. Uh, look, exactly. let, so you're obviously a, a Tasmanian Bomber fan. What's the support for the Bombers like in Tasmania? So obviously uh, due to COVID in 2021 uh, – two, Essendon ended up having two games in Tasmania, the one against the Hawks and then that final against the Bulldogs that looked like it was, might break the curse there for a while before it, it all went pear-shaped. Uh, and it seemed like there were the really strong crowd support there for the Bombers. What's your general take on, where do the Bombers rank in terms of uh, teams that people support in Tasmania?
1: Uh, I was definitely up there from my perspective and I'm speaking to someone I'm 38 so I'm you know when I look around the people that I you know around my age group who I grew up with you know friends at high school things like that there was, there was a lot of estrogen in there obviously you know the success from the 80s for you know you know, fathers going through down to their sons to be stereotypical, let's say, you know, the ninety success under she that, that we spoke to, I mean, a lot of it would have been drawn towards that. It's interesting when you mentioned the support, that those two games in Launceston you mentioned, I went to them both as a supporter and I've covered a lot of Hawthorne games in Launceston and, and there's, it's very easy to say this because the Hawks obviously have such a, a good winning record in Lonnie. So if you go to a game there, obviously they're going to outnumber the opposition um you know nine times out of ten but the the atmosphere there was as good as i've ever experienced and, and obviously it's very biased call i've just made there but you know it was drowning out the hawk supporter supporters sorry even from the start of the game and obviously once once the ties started to turn as the game got deeper that that roar got got even louder i've only really experienced it the other that uh, one other time in the, all the Hawthorne's game in Launce, games in Launceston, sorry, and I, and I was covering games there from uh, probably 2007 to what are we now? Probably 2016, 17. I might have got that that date that final year wrong, but that's you, we're talking about that sort of rough sort of um, timeline from that perspective. And the only other time I can remember it being where the you couldn't tell it was a Hawks home game was when Collingwood came down to play a practice game. And the Collingwood chant in the final quarter was was as loud and as you know, hate to say it almost as riveting as anything I've heard at a footy venue. So to put that into context, yes, it was um the support here is amazing. The game, I think, I know it was a reduced capacity from COVID, but the game sold out in, in no time, which in an era where you know, crowds have dropped away. It was an outstanding uh, result. Same same thing with the final as well. Obviously, it's essence of what was one extreme to the other. Where the first game against the Hawks was, you know, as good as it's ever been, and then especially in the second half against the, the Bulldogs when the the, uh, the heavens opened up. So not only was there a goal in the second half, and the the curse, as you said, continuing, but. It was a uh, pissing with rain as well, so it was not a good afternoon at all from that point of view. But yeah, yeah, Essendon is one of the clubs, the big big Melbourne clubs. Uh, obviously, the Hawks have got that advantage there because they've been a uh, presence in Tasmania for uh, for more than two decades. But the big Melbourne clubs, you, you'll find there's a lot of support there in in the state for them.
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned that mentioned that final, and there's a, a certain player there that's back in the back in the news for some uh, pretty uh, average performances on field or average. Uh, incidents that uh, I think trigger a lot of Essendon fans when they when they say that sort of thing happening again. We won't uh, name him, but I think every person listening knows what I'm talking about. Well, look, let's talk about Tasmanian football more generally. Obviously, uh, I think it's pretty fair to say that Tasmania is a football state, but you know, from the reading that I've done and you know, ongoing that it's been somewhat neglected by the national body, and given the preeminence of the national body, if they're getting if it's if the area is not getting the the funding or the support it needs, it's going to uh, cause issues. Um, so for those of us listening on the North Island, can you give a brief description of what's happened, say, over the past 20 years?
1: Yeah, I'd say that that perception of being neglected is one which really got heightened when Gold Coast and GWS were favoured as expansion clubs during that during uh, that previous round of expansion when, when they entered the competition. And you do understand it from a business perspective, Decision from the AFL point of view because they're developing markets. That's what you want to target when you're trying to grow the game. When you've already got a set market in Tasmania, but it didn't take away from that feeling that, as a as a state, you know we're almost being used by the by the big boys in the AFL, and and you. That I mean, you can also there's a correlation there with the way the crowds did have dropped for the Hawks and North Melbourne games in Tasmania too. That there seemed to be this feeling, this perception that okay, enough's enough from that point of view. You know, we and now that we've got our own team, there's there's an argument than that. Well, in theory, we have our own team. I'm sure we'll get to that that aspect very soon. But now we we've got that potentially on the way that you know, we'll have something our own to grab onto rather than trying to. Um, just throw money to other clubs and, you know, at least one of those two clubs you say don't need the the uh, the financial help from that perspective. It, and it has been reflected with footy as a whole, both at the grassroots level and, and, you know, if you just extend it to the amount of Tasmanians that have been drafted in, in recent times, although that number has improved, it, it does feel like that the game has gone backwards in Tasmania. There's no doubt about that. Some of it can be related to the structures at grassroots level. You know, you, you could argue that there's too many too many teams, too many competitions in some areas for the population that we have. You could argue it's just a simple case that there has been that neglect from higher powers for some years. It has improved in recent times. There's no doubt about that, but there was a period of time where it was felt like it it just wasn't being looked after the way it should be. Especially once you have a look at basketball, for example, the, the impact that that competitions that sport's had with uh, Tasmanian presence in their national competition, that there's got to be that hope that a similar thing can happen for football.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, that was the next question I want to ask you about is sort of local footy. And I, I remember re- reading others I think at least as far back as 10, 15 years ago, that clubs were struggling to field numbers and, and folding. And you mentioned that issue of the competitions. Where Where is local footy at currently? You mentioned that there there is improvement. Is it? Do you think it's stable at the moment or do you think it's still pretty rickety in terms of how how it's going
1: it is a bit of a year-by-year year thing. I mean, so some clubs will – I'm sure most clubs will say that some years that they're flying and the next year they've got a lot more question marks on it. I don't think it matters sort of what level that they're playing at. It can be that feeling. Like We've seen that in Tasmania in terms of playing numbers, even from the TSL this year. So you've got the highest level in Tasmania, club in Glenorchy, one which just has so much history attached to it. They're sort of They had serious question marks sort of that hit off the ground this season as well. So that is one of the big issues, obviously, in Tasmania, having an enough players to, to fill teams and where that leads to in terms of uneven competitions and everything that flows from there. So, so that, that is, that's still a problem. I mean, we're not naive enough to realise that suddenly we get an AFL team that was, that problem is going to solve itself straight away. But, but, you know, you look at it potentially from that sort of long-term picture that if you can just get that injection and that that interest and enthusiasm back into the game, that, that long-term it might have more of a sustainable future than it's got right now.
0: Yeah, well, let's let's start turning our attention to that AFL side then, and who and what's been driving this latest push that's culminated with the announcement in early May? Where is where has that come from, and what are the origins of that?
1: So there was an official task force put together. Um, you know, it had, had AFL names like. Uh, Nick Revell and Brendan Bolton and Chris Fagan and all that attached to it. So, so you had Tasmanians who, from an AFL point of view, had, had a real standing. There was some business backing and stuff like that. So, it, it gave it this real uh, genuine feeling more so than there probably has ever been in terms of of driving this this team. And obviously, that was enough to make, in part, help make the AFL listen. Um, the Carter report that came from it to help sort of solidify it from a business point of view. So, it was able to sort of tick all those boxes and. But probably one of the biggest aspects was the, just the public support not only from within tasmania but you sort of noticed it from a distance from the mainland as well especially when things started to turn pear-shaped at times in tasmania so we do have a state league in tasmania but the entire state isn't represented by it so at the moment in the northwest coast the, the part of the region where where i live and work there is no uh, northwest coast representation in the state league so there is an argument to say is this really a genuine state league because you don't have the entire state uh playing in it so Burnie and davenport both proud football towns cities i should say to be, to be more correct but you know great football history there are, are no longer part of the, the premier competition in tasmania and when that came about i remember it was around the time the um AFLX was being launched, and the famous pictures of Gill with the uh, the mascots there at, uh, you know, as a uh, Marvel Stadium around the launch time, and pretty much saying everything was all good in Tasmania because the participation numbers were good. Well, obviously it was the exact opposite. To me, it still sticks out of the uh, just the, that feeling from the mainland that we sort of got from a distance of how much they obviously care about Tasmania as a as a football place and needed it to to grow and to survive. For, the overall good of the game and that feeling has been resonated with this push and i think that as well as obviously what's happened within the state and the fact that the state government here has got obviously got well behind it has helped really resonate with that and it's helped turn the tide with the afl and Gil mclaughlin in particular and you know it might just be my theory on this i feel like for Gil, it's sort of a nice little tick for him before he rides off in the sunset he can sort of say well you know i've done this you know i've helped you know, set up the women's comp. I've done all these other positive things, but I've also got Tasmania, a real football state, finally on the big stage.
0: Yeah, well, look, uh, fingers crossed it, it keeps going because I know, that, as you say, there's a lot of people have been pushing for this for quite a while. But you sort of touched on it a little bit earlier and you mentioned there in terms of Devonport and Burnie. Again, for those of us uh, on the mainland that, that don't quite know the uh, – the way in which Tasmania is structured and, and how the regions affect and, and interact with each other. I guess the, the big divide in, in Tasmania is between the north and south. And just give us a bit of a sense of what that's like living in Tasmania and what that means for the potential for a, a unified Tasmanian side, especially if it's based primarily in, in Hobart. Yeah, I, I
1: don't that, – that divide is – Turning more and more to a myth than it probably actually has ever been. So there is, there'll always be this sort of north-south distinction. You're always going to have people from Launceston sort of saying our, our city's better, even though Hobart's capital. I mean, one of the easiest way to describe it is, you know, the the Tasmanian beers. You ever but you ever drink Bogues, You drink Cascade. So depending which part of the state you're from, so that part, that sort of aspect never be there. This, this team and I referenced uh, basketball the jack jumpers before that they do they do unify state the state sport does unify the state and football the map has in history you know well before my time you look back at the vision and, and you see what what it's done to bring people together and that's what this team would do if it can you know and it hopefully it will we've got the license but obviously there's still still some doubt still some question marks despite from a political point of view despite every the positive news that did come uh, when it was announced announced, but it would it would bring it together. The North v South stuff becomes less less apparent I think with this team, because yes, yes, you're going to have games played, it's going to be based in Hobart. Yes, you're going to have, you know, you have to have more games in one region than the other just on the basis of the number of games on offer. So there are these things where, you know, as a state, you, you have to accept it. So. A long way around i don't think the north east south thing is as is as significant as some some people think it is or as it has been in the past that this team would bring people together and we've sort of seen i mean one of the biggest examples is the hobart hurricanes and the bbl if you, if you told me 10 or 15 years ago you'd have a team called hobart that would actually have support from the entire state would actually be playing games in launceston you know i wouldn't have believed you. but they are you know I know the Big Bash has sort of waned a bit in terms of his popularity in recent years, but Hobart, you know, they promote themselves as Tas- Tasmania's team. That, that's accurate and, that, and that's worked. And that, that's sort of an example of sort of breaking down those barriers that, yes, it might be based somewhere. And in this case, it's called something else, but it's still, uh, you know, it's still a Tasmanian team in a national competition. It's something that we all have pride of as Tasmanians no matter where we live. Look, as you, as you said there, so it
0: doesn't sound like that's going to be a major issue behind uh, preventing the side from being a success. Well, let's look at something that could um, cause issue, and it's probably what's causing a lot of the debate at the moment. The conditions of the contract that the government signed with the AFL, and that, that's only come out just recently. Uh, what's been learned from that, and what do you think it tells you about how committed the AFL is for this to be a success?
1: Well, I think the AFL is committed. I've got no doubt they they want this to happen. I, you, you sense you sense they're an organisation that's not going to waste their time. They wouldn't be they wouldn't be offering up a licence that they didn't think A would work. And B that it, you know, and obviously from it working, I mean more than just from an on-field and perspective, that it wouldn't be a sustainable business model from that perspective. I mean the obvious one is the stadium. I mean that I know that's that's generated so much ang- angst already in Tasmania. I'm guessing it's sort of the spotlight's been there for those listeners from the mainland from that point of view as well. So, you know that that's sort of the final hurdle. I mean. We sort of say within our organisation, the advocate, it's the price that we have to pay. I mean, nothing comes for free in this world, and obviously that's got to be the case that we take. You can understand the frustrations of some people in regards to the world that we're in, in terms of um, there might be higher priorities in terms of you know housing, health, everything else like that, but. This is, you know, like I said, the price you have to pay to actually get get this happen. If we want a, a team, then, you know, that this is something that we you know people gonna have to buy the bullet to ensure that we can have this have every have the have the dream realised and the stadium is has to be part of that. Now there's some questions about whether we need it based on the fact that there are only two AFL standard venues in Tasmania, but at the same time, you could argue why just stick with what you got. Why not why not A and B? Why not try to make this sing and make this the best possible product it can be and, and a new stadium. Just looks to be the best way to do that. Yeah. And I mean it, again, you see sort
0: of what's happened with, with Perth and Optus and Stadium and uh the way the Adelaide Oval redevelopments really redefined that city. And you would expect that with the Olympics in Brisbane that the Gabba is yeah. they're going to make the Gabba you know, one of those places. And um, you know, I think I've I understand where a lot of people coming from when it comes to the stadium and, and the, the money that's allocated, because there is a housing crisis and there's a health crisis across the whole country. Um, but yeah, some people argue oh, it's only going to be used six times a year, and you think about modern stadiums these days—you know, they're used for concerts and things like that. But even the function centres within them, you know, they'll get round the round the um, round the year use. So, for example, our the school that I work at um, is doing their formal at Marvel Stadium. So, you know, you could have things like that. So, you've got constant employment, you've got constant events going on in that area. So, I think people need to think a bit broader in terms of the value it can bring and and the regeneration it can bring. Again, recognising that, you know, people have to make choices with money and I understand where people are coming from, where they think that the choice should be. You just pump more into housing and health again, which is a, a fairly valid point.
1: Yeah, I worry about, and getting off the, off the football topic a little bit here, but I worry about the impact almost long term for Tasmania if this doesn't happen, about the message that it sends, especially to the next generation. I mean, Tasmania has this anti-development reputation in many ways. There's a, you know, there can be this section of the community that just doesn't like change. And that that section can exist in obviously a lot of communities around the country, I'm guessing as well. But for some reason, it seems to be heightened in Tasmania. I worry about the message that sends to the to you know a, a kid in primary school or high school or something growing up looking at this. If they see this this get pushed to one side, I mean, how how excited would they be to grow up in Tasmania in a place which might not be willing to move forward and just be happy to to sit where it is as a as a community, let's say, or as a state, or, you know, you can. I just, that's just something which sort of sticks in my mind. But there's also the fact too that if this doesn't work, surely it's the last chance. The AFL aren't going to come back in, in 20-odd years' time and say, you know, here, here you have another go. If this doesn't happen right now, you cannot see a way Tasmania will, will ever have its own AFL team and we'll be having Hawthorne and Northfield and play here until the end of time. And whether that's good for the game, whether that's good for, for anyone, I, I very much doubt.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier... You know, one of the arguments against the new stadium deal is the existing grounds in Tasmania that are currently used for AFL in in Reve and or Blundstone Arena now and uh, Utas York Park. Um, what are the issues with with those statements? I, when I did see that when uh, Albanese announced the funding for uh, the Hobart Stadium, that there was going to be redevelopment also on York Park. What's the what's the main problem with Belle Why why can't that work as the home stadium for the team?
1: I reckon the biggest issue is location. So it's not actually in the CBD. And, and again, you, you sort of use Adelaide, Oval, you use Perth, you, you know, just go to Melbourne, you've got your major stadiums within have been walking distance. So it's just that little bit out of out of the way from a location point of view. It, there's also the fact it's actually a cricket ground, not a football ground. So it was, it's actually been designed more so for cricket than anything. Now, it doesn't mean you can't play football, obviously, but it, it is more, you know, in perfect world, you know, the uh, – Former Premier Jim Bacon had it sort of set up where it was cricket in the north of the state and, and football in the, Sorry, cricket, <laughs> cricket in the south and football in the north. I've got that one wrong. Um, and, and obviously, Bell Reve was where cricket w- would be played and football would be played at York Park. Now, we've moved away from that, and we sort of mentioned that north-south divide. That was, would have been part of sort of uh, implementing that. But long story short, Bell Reve, Reve is not where you would want it to be if you were building a stadium from scratch. Simple as that, if you wanted to base a team, you'd want it to have it based around your CBD from that, that economic point of view, you know, your tourists coming in, everything like that. Where it is at the moment, just out of that CBD is not preferred. Comparison, Utah Stadium is really like a five-minute walk from Launceston CBD, but it's not its capital, it's not as, you know, as big of a location and everything that, that flows from there in terms of um as grounds they probably do work but at the same time that idea to make it as big and bold and powerful as possible sort of goes from there where you've got sort of two really sort of boutiquey nice sort of grounds you can have something more more modern and and more more 2023 than what we've got in those other venues without wanting to take anything away from those two grounds because they're both obviously Excellent facilities, and both have played, you know, a key role in, let's say, the sporting history of Tasmania. But whilst we don't want to push them to one side completely, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with with looking to the to the future. I mean, similar, I would have imagined back in Melbourne when um, uh, the Dockland Stadium was being built, when you sort of you, you've got yep, you had Waverley, um, obviously got the MCG in place, but you know, why not look to something grander and you know something different, something a bit more unique, something a bit more going to the future? This is, I reckon, you can make comparisons with that. To, to what was experienced back then
0: yeah I, I can understand that where you're coming from with there I guess just generally how how do you sense tasmanians feeling about this at this point I've seen I follow a few um pollsters on on Twitter and they're sort of mentioning there's a lot of polls flying out there from different groups and I think you know there's different numbers out there and a lot of that depends on how the question is phrased and, and things yeah. like that what's your general sense about how tasmanians are feeling? about what's happened in the past few weeks?
1: I'd say the general sense of unease about it all. Like it went from the the highest of highs to to suddenly so much, so many questions, so many doubts about it all. That'd be, the, I reckon that's the safest way to what you Like of anything, you've got, you, you got your vocal supporters of the stadium and you've got your vocal anti-stadium types, let's say. There's, you know, it's probably those in the, that middle ground as well, but, it's still, I mean, there are some which will say it's already dead. It's probably some of you have a lot more political knowledge, sorry, than, than I do from that perspective. But I still reckon it's probably too close to call from that perspective. And knowing the power that the AFL's got, there's still that part of me which makes me think they'll find a way to make this work, even if it's not the desired model that they, they put out there initially the general public i just feel like there's an element of for a lot of people i think they just think it's a bit sad how it's developed how it's gone from being that ultimate celebration to you know suddenly it's our moment to play with the big boys and it's become that sort of political football now and it's become that that real debate and almost just a a divisive sort of bit of divisive tool in society where for a lot of people you know you're either you're either are for it or you're against it and that you know people can be very vocal about letting that, their feelings known from that and that can lead to some feelings of unease. Hopefully that, hopefully whichever way it goes, things are not as um, uncomfortable as they, are, as they are now. But, yeah, I think unease is the way to, probably the best way to put it because it, just right at the moment from what looks like something, you know, pretty certain was going to happen, it's, it's just uh, in, for many people, many situations, it's still a bit of a mystery.
0: Yeah, and I think at the moment, with the way in which it's been negotiated with the new uh, independents, it's had, they've had to change the way that they're classifying the project, and it now has to go through Parliament and the like, So I guess there's questions there about what the likelihood of that is, but again, you know, that's got to play out, and you know, that's probably got a few months left to run, really, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a battleground which could change. I think in the blink of an eye. Like, I mean, we we might be in one situation now about how it's how it could pass from a planning point of view, and you know it might end up going in another way type of situation. It's really a difficult one to comment from that point of view. The one thing to keep in mind it is it has become that political football where obviously the Labor opposition in Tasmania as well as the Greens are sort of running with the uh, the concept of being really you know anti-stadium even though from a labour perspective you're probably not as let's say concrete in terms of their opposition to it because you know there's enough your sense there's enough realization from labour that they know if they're 100% anti then they're 100% anti the team which is from a political point of view um wouldn't be the wisest move it would be interesting to see what happens either way I mean if it doesn't happen there's going to be politicians in Tasmania and groups who you could argue would have played a role in, in killing the Tasmanian AFL dream, something which, you know, has, has been a fight for generations. So if it doesn't go the way that, you know, a lot of us want it to go, how how, how those that that fought for the stadium not to happen can bounce back from that will be very interesting to watch. Hmm.
0: Well, let's forecast ahead then and say that, you know, all these issues are resolved and the team goes ahead looking like 2027, 2028 is roughly the the go time. Uh, We've obviously, in living memory, got the expansion to GWS and and Gold Coast, and we saw a lot of mistakes made with with those expansions. Uh, Do you think Tasmania is better placed than those sides uh, to be successful? And what do you think the lessons that a future Tasmanian team will take from those expansion sides about how not to set up their club?
1: Yeah, I think... I think the grounding being from a football state will obviously help. Like you're gonna Tasmania you'd imagine would have the, the the people support, the crowd support to start with and it wouldn't just be more you know, I mean no disrespect to Gold Coast and GWS. It's, it's not gonna be bandwagon people from the game. And I've been to I've been to a game in, in Metric on the Gold Coast it was actually um round one 2016, so a week before that Melbourne game we mentioned um, earlier on. And you look around the crowd and there was more Essendon people than Gold Coast people. And I mean that's probably a reflection too on the, the magnitude of the Eastern Football Club, but also on the other uh, the market, the Gold Coast, in where you're not, you don't have a football market, so you're going to have people that are already you know, might A are connected to, to other clubs, but B aren't going to connect to your own club. Whereas Tasmania will at least you're going to have people which will support both clubs. If they've already got an AFL club will jump to their jump to the Tassie Club. You're going to have more of a generational feel, you reckon, as well. By the time the team gets up, you're going to have these these kids which will already be part of part of it all. But the other key aspect to think about from my point of view is obviously from a list management point of view. I mean, surely we see the mistakes from Gold Coast and GWS from that point of view, where, where Gold Coast, where you in particular had the, the one big star player in Gary Ablett and maybe some sort of handy tots around him... And then a lot of talented kids to pretty much build that that initial list wherein GWS pretty much had a lot of kids and some veteran types to try to try to sort of guide them in those early stages. Seemingly, logic suggests you've got to have some sort of middle ground between those two because both those clubs, and obviously Gold Coast more so than GWS as the Giants, have made a grand final. The lack of on-field success has, has hurt them. I mean, even though Tasmania does come from an AFL state, if, 10 to 15 years in its life, it spent the majority of that time in the bottom four, there would still have to be question marks on it from a, a sustainability point of view. So, surely the lessons from the list point of view is to find that sort of middle ground, and it sounds like they have from, from everything you read in terms of the uh, sort of trade trading and list concessions they may get is to sort of have that middle tier age experience player in there as well, not just try to go from one extreme to the other and have that mix because just kids, which is obviously the majority of Gold Coast and GDOS doesn't seem to have worked and putting all those kids in one place, a lot of them have left at the same time for both those clubs. And, and surely that's had that impact too on the, the long-term viability from an on field point of view for those two organisations.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned the concessions that it seems like they'll get in terms of draft picks and, and then ability to to trade players. And I think it's uh, any Tasmanian players played over a hundred games, uh, or any person from Tasmania's play over 100 games, you you have sort of father-son rights there. You know, given five years in the future, let's say the Tasmanian side comes in and is able to, you know, coax the best Tasmanian talent back home. Uh, I'm thinking as an Essendon fan where Port Adelaide came in and they were able to uh, get Wanganeen to go back. Is there anyone you can think of that you would want to you want to guarantee to get to, to come back to be sort of the... The face of that side at this stage, or is there no one really outstanding? I'm I just throwing this question at you yeah. at short notice. There, sorry. So
1: probably, t- oh, probably the one that jumps out to me. I reckon he'd still be in a good age bracket. Alex Pierce at Frio. I think that'd be the one. I know he's a he's a passionate footy man, a passionate Tasmanian man. So who knows where he's at, and where Freo's at in those years. But you could imagine he could be someone. you could be that that sort of face, and, and you know, almost be that early sort of captain. Uh, on recent times, um, Lockie Cowan at at Carlton, he'd he'd be sort of someone that. Yeah, he's made that. He made a, you know, he's obviously made a good start to his time at AFL level. So he's someone from an age point of view, you think would be right at the prime of his career by the time it gets going. Um, Seth Campbell, another one from the northwest coast, was uh, went to Richmond. I think it was in the rookie draft last year. So from an age point of view, probably around there. I mean, if you look at the, at, at point of view, Jai Menzi might be around that. Might still be from a an age point of view. He's going alright at the moment, so I think we want to hang on to him in the short term at least. But you know, look at it from that point of view. They're the sort of sort of age bracket type guys that you could look at that by the time the Tassie team gets in would be in that sort of mid-20s onwards, it could actually start to be that sort of base, that base of that that club. And and obviously if they're Tasmanian, um, it sort of adds to that that sort of appeal.
0: Yeah, I guess you'd want to have a, a fair Tasmanian flavour there, although you yeah. know, people move down and, and adjust to say, Hobart Lifestyle, which a lot of people have, have done, you know, they move yeah. down and enjoy the the quietness and the, you know, just the The region and and the differences there you know they've said you know people said oh people would love to go live at the Gold Coast but that hasn't really you know obviously worked out so maybe Hobart will be the next destination there.
1: Well Geelong seems if you talk to people I mean I've only spent a little bit of my time in in Geelong but talk to people that's the appeal of Geelong as well as obviously some you know on-field success so if Hobart in any way can replicate that aspect and you know, a bit, bit of a, a few wins on the board helps. But if they can replicate that aspect, then surely that's going to be appealing too. But not everyone's made for the, the big city, the big smoke. So it, it does add that sort of nice alternative to, to that aspect of life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we're going to start wrapping up, Alex. I really want to thank you for joining me tonight. Just quick shout out, where can people find uh, your work and, and your Twitter handle?
1: Uh, yeah, that's good. Uh, so the advocate advocate website is best place to go. We've obviously got uh, social media accounts there on, on Facebook as well. So uh, northwest coast of Tasmania is where we are based. Look at that. Uh, so my Twitter handle, I think it's geez, what is it? AJ Fair eighty five. It's been a while. i what that is. But yeah, find me there. Um, despite the fact that I don't, uh, it's small That's right, AJ Fair eighty five. Uh, I'm not writing sport anymore. I'm still tweeting a lot about sports. So if you want some um over-the-top asset and tweets at times, it's it's a good place to go. I know you you're good at that as well, Ian. So we we got that in common.
0: Absolutely. Well look, Matt, I said before I said earlier to someone that uh during the, when the match is on we can afford not to be reasonable and then we turn back the reasonable face on after the match. But during the game, we're all one eyed Dons fans. So yeah, really wanna thank you for Uh, coming on and joining me and i'll put links to that stuff in the show notes um really appreciate your insights on what's going on the tasmanian afl side uh look for those listening on the made feed this episode was released a week earlier on patreon you can sign up to patreon for a free trial from the link in the episode description uh as always a bonus episode we released one week early through patreon each month until next time stay safe and go dons